Pastor Scott and lead pastor of the river. And really glad that you're checking out our uh, online podcast and our services and hope that you are blessed by this. Certainly, if you have any questions, if you're wondering about stuff that goes on here or maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them, feel free. Contact us in the office. Give us a call. Send us an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. love to answer any questions that you have. Uh, we hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's Word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known, that you know how much he truly, truly, truly loves you. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. From Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to, to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You'll notice that this particular portion of the book of Romans seems different than certainly previous portions of it. Paul is striking the hammer blow of marching orders to the Romans and certainly also to us. He's giving all these imperatives. There's, uh, it's full of them in this text this morning. One after the other. Imperatives are commands. Do this. Don't do this. Be this. Love this way. Paul is truly giving a whole bunch of stuff that he wants the Roman Christians and us to be aware of if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting because Paul does this in 
all of his letters. He gives words of instruction. In fact, you will find in some of his other letters, if you have headings, there are, as a title, instructions from Paul, or instructions on worship, or instructions for living. And that actually is interesting because usually they're at the end, which has given rise to a debate, which I'm not going to engage in this morning, that perhaps Romans, this should have been the end of Romans, or was the end of the book of Romans as Paul wrote it, and there is a combining here of two letters to Rome that Paul wrote. I'm not going to go into that debate this morning, but it certainly is a different feeling to this text. And as we look at this text, we see one after the other after the other. This is how you and I are called to live. Now, how Paul does this is interesting because he starts with one very powerful sentiment. He gives, right from the beginning, these directives in light of what? Sincere love. Yeah, I'm skipping over the first point. You people who like to fill in blanks, you can be mad at me later. Directives in light of sincere love. Verse 9a could almost be followed by a colon. Could say, love is always sincere. Love must be sincere. Dot, dot. Here's how. Here's your definition. And everything that follows becomes a definition of how love is sincere. Especially because as we dig into some of these things, you and I can certainly see just how hard they are. It's difficult to love the way that Paul is calling us to love. Now, verse 9b, we need to understand how grammar is important. There's a word that appears twice. That word is what. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, what is a certain kind of word? It's an impersonal direct object. It's not a personal one. The difference between a personal and impersonal is what as opposed to whom. Paul is saying here... You and I are called to hate what is evil, not those who are evil. This is not about hating a person. This is about hating a behavior, hating an activity, hating an action. Certainly that saying that some people like, some people don't, is love the sinner hate the sin. But Paul seems to be affirming that. Hate what is evil. Do not hate the person who behaves in an evil manner. And that's hard sometimes for us to draw that distinction, isn't it? Because we can so often get into the mode of hating a person, hating a people. We can, we can hate something that someone does, yes, but then so oftentimes we can take it another step. We hate Muslims. We hate this people group. We hate that people group that is different than us. And Paul is saying, no, no, that's wrong. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And then verse 10 flushes more about how we live into relationship. And remember, I've talked about it before here in one of my previous messages about the word devotion. 
And devotion is one of those words that is all-consuming. If you and I are going to be devoted to something, if we are going to be in devotion, a devotional time, let's say, with God in the morning, that time is dedicated, that time is focused, that time is all about God. And when Paul says here, be devoted to one another, he's certainly bringing a level of activity from out of his words that demands a lot. Be devoted means with all of yourself. And that too can be hard. Why? Because we have an agenda. We have plans and purposes for ourselves. We have only so much time. And being devoted to another, especially when they're not easy to be devoted to, becomes even more difficult. But Paul's command here is being, be devoted to one another. And then by doing so, we're, by putting another before ourselves, it reflects how much we're living into that devotion. The golden rule is not just there to help us know how to live. The golden rule is there to change us, to help us die to self, put another before ourself. Because if we're putting ourselves before another, we're not dying. Our pride our selfishness is still quite alive, thank you. Putting another needs of another's need before our own is a part of dying to self. And then verse 11 gives it instruction and execution of instruction. It says, do not lack in zeal. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Again, we could almost say, how? By serving the Lord. It's interesting because I think, as I've talked with many of you, I know it from my own life, we can get into some spiritual flatlines, some complacency, right? I'm not growing right now. You know what I'm talking about when you're saying that? I don't feel like I'm growing in relationship with God. If that's the case, that's the case for you right now, I would wonder with you, are you serving the Lord? Because, as we read it from Paul, if we do not want to be lacking in that zeal, if we want to grow in our zealousness for God, how is it that we might do it? By serving the Lord more fully. Are you and I exploring places where God is gifting us, where God is calling us, or are we holding back? And if we're holding back, we can expect that line to stay flat or even descend. To grow in zeal comes from growing more in our service. As we've talked about many times before, discovering the gifts God has given us and using them in the kingdom, growing our understanding of how he has called us and then pursuing those callings. That grows a zeal for the Lord. Why? Because he meets us in those moments. Those are the moments where God shows up in you and says, yes, I called you here. And because I called you here, when you get there, I'm going to be there. I'll show up. I'll do my work. Yes, if you use this gift in faith, when you use it, you will see me at work. That grows zeal in us because we say, you know what? This God, this God I love is real and he's powerful and he's using me for his kingdom. And then we get verse 12. And there's loads of connections made in verse 12. Joy comes from a life of hope. Patience comes through trial. Faith grows through prayer. For us to wonder how it is that we can 
continue to mature as a follower of Jesus Christ. These are good instructions for us to hear. If you're going to live into joy, then think about how hopeful a person you are. Are you hopeful that God's promises are real? That your future is sure in Jesus Christ? Are you hopeful that God's kingdom is coming? It's coming now and it's coming in the future on this earth. If you are living in that hope, that hope brings assurance. That assurance helps us to live into joy. If you don't have joy... Wonder about how you interact with that word hope and patience. If you're an impatient person, you'll find out really quickly going through suffering, challenge, affliction, that patience grows. I've sat with Carol often the last year or so. And those of you who know Carol, I love Carol, wonderful, incredible woman. I pray God's presence on her. But she hasn't always been a very patient person. She'll admit this to you. A couple things she'll admit, that she is impatient and she is stubborn. What's interesting is how God, through the last number of weeks, has grown her patience. Why? Because she has sat beside the bed of her beloved husband. She's cried tears, wondering if this breath is the last one or if there's another one coming. She's wondered at length why God has taken this so long. She's wondered why. But within that suffering, within that affliction, God has grown in her a patience waiting on him to do what he will do. If you want to become a more patient person, then be in prayer for challenges, afflictions, even sufferings that will grow that patience within you. And yeah, that means you're praying a hard prayer and you can expect hard things. But here's the beauty of it. As patience grows in us, we are more equipped to live into the suffering of others. Why? Because we know how it works. Finally, on, those se- on that section, faith grows through prayer. If you want to be a person of greater faith, engage more deeply in prayer with God. As you do that, you learn more about Him. Prayer is relationship. We understand that, right? It's interaction. It's like talking with a spouse or a friend. The more you talk, the more you share, the more intimate your relationship becomes, the more you know and understand each other. As that happens with God the Father, as that happens with Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit, we engage with prayer with them. We learn who they are more. We understand them more. Our intimacy grows. And as our intimacy with them grow more fully, we trust and believe that what they say is true. And how they call us, that they will meet us in them. Want to grow your faith? Wonder about how it is that you are praying, how you're growing in prayer. Has anyone seen the movie Tomorrowland yet? A couple of you. My family and I went to see it last weekend. It's an interesting film. Uh, It's totally Disney, which is 
drives me a little crazy sometimes. But um, it's it's good films. George Clooney. I don't forget. I forget who the young girl is. But um, there's there's some interesting thoughts in there. It actually has stuff about extra dimensions. So I'm not going to get into that because it's pretty complex. Although you know I like that sort of stuff. I get it gets me excited because I like to think those sorts of things. But uh, let me just share this. In the movie Tomorrowland, there's two worlds. There's this world, present time, the one we know, and there's another world. That's Tomorrowland. And in this world, things are bad. Actually, that says a lot about our present culture because it talks about environmental challenges that keep getting worse. It talks about racial challenges that continue to grow, racial conflict. It talks about war, disease, all these different things that slowly but surely the world is destroying itself. But then there's Tomorrowland. And Tomorrowland is a place where there is hope, where there are good things, where there is a future. And the future is a good future. And it is a place where people will go in order to learn and grow and then come back to the world that we live in and be a part of fixing the problems. The problem in the movie is that the tie has been severed. And there's no way for people to have hope in Tomorrowland, bring it back to Earth. And so, Earth will die. Earth will be destroyed. Earth will eventually consume itself and be gone. And the whole movie is about one young girl who finds hope. And she finds just enough hope to change her future. And her future changes the future of those around her. And that changes the world. Now, certainly it's a Disney film, and we know it doesn't always work quite out. It doesn't work out quite that nicely and quite that in, in such an entertaining fashion. But there's some truth there. When we talk about the word hope, when Paul shares with us the word hope, what he is saying is, as you and I live hope into hopelessness, we know those around us who experience hopelessness. As we live out the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, as we trust that this sacrament is real in reminding of us of what is to come, that one day we will share the bread and the food in the presence presence of God for all eternity because he promised us that and reminds us con constantly to do this so that we can remember that and live in light of this truth. As we live out that sort of hope in the world around us, there's a contagion that comes with us. There's a contagion that transfers from us into others and it's called Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, when we live into the hope that we know in him, when we live into that hope in the world around us, people see it. People listen to us when we speak differently. Why? Because we have hope. Why? Because we know faith. Why? Because we know love. And we are showing people Jesus. And the world is desperate for it. Because the world is destroying itself. God will come someday to redeem it, transform it, renew it. Yes, so our hope is a little bit different than that of Tomorrowland. But as we live out our hope, it can change the world around us. Now, 
Next section, 14 through 16. Paul keeps the gas pedal down, and he's just hammering it here. He goes through these things. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And if you look at this section, look at this section in light of how difficult some of these things are to live out. Let's start with some of them. Give blessing to those who put your faith down. That's hard to do. Why? Because you're ticked off. Because you're upset. You may even be hurt by what one might say to you about your faith. We certainly see that in places of religious persecution in other cultures and contexts. It's got to be hard for some of those people experiencing that persecution to live out blessing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's hard. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, the reason why I put on here that that's sometimes hard is because that person might be rejoicing in something that you want to rejoice in but can't. Think about a young woman who has the calling to rejoice with a friend who is having her first child when she herself can't get pregnant. Think about a person who is rejoicing with another or called to rejoice with another who's graduating from college and has some great job prospects when they graduated two or three years ago and the prospects seem none. It can be hard to do that. Next, we have this. Mourn with those who mourn. That's hard. There's some people who won't go to a hospital or won't go to funerals or won't go to open casket viewing. Why? Because they're fearful of death or they're uncomfortable with it. Talking about death can be one of the most uncomfortable challenges that we might have to face. I got to tell you, this is one that I've had to do a lot of learning in. I've had to grow in this. Why? Because I'm in places of death often. Frankly, I'm sick of death incredibly sick of it. But here's the other side of that. There's a reason why Paul calls us to mourn with those who mourn. I'll tell you, I would much rather do a funeral than a wedding. Now, if you're thinking about getting married, please still ask me. I won't be a downer at your wedding if you would like me to marry you. But the reason that I am more favorable towards a funeral is how God speaks. And the words that God can speak into a life and how ready people at a funeral are to receive words of hope. One of the reasons why we mourn with those who mourn is because that is a place where God works powerfully. Ask somebody who's gone through a death in their life. They can tell you about things that have incredibly blessed them that other people have shared with them, and other things that have incredibly hurt them by what other people have spoken to them or shared. Why? Because there's power there. When Paul calls us to mourn with those who mourn, he's introducing us to a powerful place where God can be at work as we live into a sincere love in a house of mourning. Living in harmony with one another, that's really easy, right? I mean, we get along great. Everything's perfect in the world that we live in. Of course not. It's really hard to do that. Why? Because we're selfish. Why? Because we have an agenda. Why? Because we're different. 
than each other. And our differences betray that we want things differently than another wants them. We have a different mindset. We have a different attitude. We have different plans, dreams, purposes. And what we value is different than what they do. And when Paul calls us to die to self in the previous section, he's speaking exactly to something like this. Living in harmony with one another calls us to die to our own agendas. Ask any husband or wife that is newly married how hard it is to live out of the selfishness and into the selfishness, selflessness required of a good marriage. Ask anyone who has a roommate, even. It's not quite so um, poignant there, but it's equally so. Because our selfishness is so ingrained with us that it's hard to live at peace when we live into it. To die to self in our own dreams, passions, plans, to our own agenda, and be devoted completely to one another is the calling of Paul here. And do not be proud or conceited. And I certainly shared with you last week, that's a difficult one for me. I have pride and I have conceit. And I pray the Lord continues to work on that, that I grow in humility. That can be really hard to do, though. And associate with those of low position. And that's really hard, but it comes with a qualifier. And let me give you the qualifier. We have a lot of ministry here at the river, and certainly a lot of our ministry can be classified in the area of serving the poor. But I want to make sure that we get the understanding of that definition, poor, right. It's a broad definition. It's not just about a financial poverty. It's not just about a homelessness or a poverty of health when it comes to things like addictions. That that poor, serving those who are poor, is a much broader definition that can include poor in relational health, poor in spiritual health, poor in whatever sort of developmental, relational issues have come up. Poverty means a lot of different things. And what I can tell you, having been a pastor here for five years and in, a minist- and in ministry for over 20, is that if you really want to do a good job of ruining your church in a beautiful way, then go and serve the poor. You will ruin your church, but in a beautiful way. Why? Because serving the poor... Sharing with those who are less fortunate, and again, using that broad definition, is really hard, and it changes you, and it messes with you, and it forces you to ask questions that are hard to ask, and especially hard to get the answer to. If you want to ruin your own life in a beautiful way, go out and serve the poor. But here's the thing. The reason it's beautiful is because that's exactly how God wants to change us. That's exactly what God wants us to do. Because serving the poor, broad definition, is a hard thing that causes us to what? Die to self. And allow God to show up with his agenda and not ours. Because I'll tell you this. If you serve somebody who's poor, again, broad definition, a lot of times it's not going to work. It's not going to get solved. The issue is going to continue on maybe for decades. 
Those of you out there who are in ministry to the poor, broad definition, know exactly what I'm talking about. But within that, you have to trust that God has a plan and a purpose here in what it is that I am doing, and I will simply do it in faithfulness, trusting that somehow or other, God will receive glory in this. And you know how often he does that is he does that in changing you. When I serve the poor as a pastor, you know what it causes me to do? Get down on my knees and pray because it's so stinking hard. I can never figure it out. All of these things that Paul is putting in front of us are hard things. But the big plan and purpose here is that all of them, in their being difficult and challenging, call us to die to self and become what? Living sacrifices. For God to use however he might, however he will. Last section, really quickly, we can tie that in very quickly because it hinges on two things. First of all, the key here is verse 20. Verse 20 says this, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And that whole section modifies verse 21. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How? By giving to those who are hungry. By giving to those who are thirsty. We understand this because we know that if we give food to an enemy, it won't be long until that enemy is no longer an enemy. We see it at work in the world that we live in. Look at places all over the world where organizations will go in and serve food, bring clean water, medical care, care for children. It's not long before the people from those organizations, if done well, become friends, not enemies anymore. And that's what Paul is calling us to. At the same time, though, he's still saying, but guess what? Even if they are living outside of God's will, even if they are not following Jesus, you don't have to worry about it. God will. Vengeance is God's thing. Ours is love. That's what we've got. Vengeance is lives in God's world. We live into a world of love. That's all we can know. That's all we can live into. Now, how do we finish this up? So what? Well, first of all, Paul gives us marching orders that guide us to be what? Living sacrifices. And none of these things are easy. But all of them allow us to die to self and live for Christ. These are all things, instructions that Paul is giving us that give light to what it is that he said in the previous section. And then this, in dying to self, we're allowing Christ to multiply our giftings. We're allowing God to come in and take what it is that we are and then make it bigger. How? By taking us out of the way, dying to self. And then he uses us more powerfully to grow the kingdom for his glory. 
Now, I was reading this text. There's a lot of instruction. There are a lot of imperatives, which is interesting because the class that I took preaching in when I was in seminary said, don't ever use imperatives in your preaching. It's not a good idea. It makes people go away feeling like they're guilty if they don't do them. Paul does that, which is interesting. And the other part that's interesting about this section is what word is never used in the entire section that we just read. And that word, if you look real closely, is Jesus, right? Look at your text. Is Jesus there even once? God is once. The word God is used once. But Jesus is never used in this text. Why? Well, here's what I think. I think that Paul doesn't have to use the name Jesus here. Because this entire text is Jesus. Love must be sincere. Has there ever been a more sincere love than the son for creation? You should bless those who persecute you. Who did that better than him? You should live with those who are poor. Who did that better than he? You should feed those who are hungry by the thousands and thousands, should give drink to those who need it, maybe at the table. Christ is the personification of this entire text, which is interesting because, again, lots of instruction. Paul gives marching orders to you and I, yes, to live a good life, yes, to live a life of sincerity, but more importantly... For us to hear that since this life that we are living into is one that is best described as a Christ-like life, we need to understand something awfully important. You and I can't do it except if he's the one who does it in us. You and I can't live into all these imperatives. We will end up at the end of the day just feeling guilty, just feeling like failures, just feeling like it's an impossible life. How many hard things did we mention that Paul calls us to and you and I can probably in our lifetime master one of them. But they're all there unless Christ shows up. And when Christ shows up in us and does the work and he lives out through us, we die to ourself. Transformed, renewed mind. Dying to self. Christ shows up and takes over so that as we go and do the imperatives of this text, the world in us sees Jesus. And if the Lord wills it, when they see Christ in us, perhaps they might know, perhaps they might receive the grace, perhaps they might believe, and perhaps everything for them might be changed. Would you pray with me? Hope of the world in Jesus Christ, we pray. That, Father, you equip us through the power of your spirit because of the work of Jesus to these marching orders that you've given. You've given us instruction. 
And it's hard because there's just so much here. And it's beyond us. We are incapable of doing it ourselves. We can't even come close to who you are and how you lived in this world. But we do know that when you show up in us, that we are, when we are transformed by a renewed mind, a renewed mind of Christ, when we die to self, that you might be more alive in us, that these things grow. And as they grow in us, the world sees them more clearly. And perhaps, Lord, you might use them to bring more people to yourself as you will it. Father, equip us to this end because we can't do it ourselves. Only you can. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.